from Peter Sloterdijk's You Must Change Your Life. The conquest of the improbable for an acrobatic ethics. Quoting Ingeborg Bachmann, jump through the burning hoop of the world. Program. After the partly narrative, partly analytical introduction to the planet of the practicing, the terrain of the following investigations should be sufficiently familiar in its rough outlines. Now it is time to survey the ascetological field more precisely. This assumes that we keep our distance from the chimeras of philosophical anthropology, regardless of whether it sides with Scheller in attempting to explain the human place in the cosmos, or taking up Blumenberg's trail, resolves to give an accurate perspective on man as the animal that sees itself being seen. I'm not saying that someone who sees chimeras has not seen them, but they only recognise what their method allows them to perceive. The specialist interests in a personified form. The specialised interests in a personified form. The philosophy professor himself who swings over from the savannah to the seminar as a model for all evolution. And when Scheller says that man is the Catiline of nature, the eternal troublemaker, rerum novarum cupidus, such a perspective even adds a political and criminological colour. One expects Cicero to appear at once and ask the eternal man how long he will continue to abuse our patience. A material anthropology at the standard of our present knowledge can only be developed in the form of a general anthropotechnology. This describes humans as the creatures that live in the enclosure of disciplines, involuntary and voluntary ones alike. From this angle, anarchisms and chronic indisciplines too are simply disciplines in alternative enclosures. The word anthropotechnics points to a universe on which such authors as Arnold Galen with his insistence on the necessity of tying the individual to institutions to avert a descent into wilderness. Jacques Lacan, with his espousal of a symbolic order, understood in terms of paternal law, and Pierre Bourdieu, with his attentiveness to the basis of class-specific behaviour in the habitus, have already formulated partial views. Ethnolinguists inspired by Wittgenstein, structuralist ritual researchers and Foucauldian discourse historians also set foot on this terrain some time ago. Any unwillingness to learn from these authors would be unwise. Anyone who has taken a cue from Nietzsche and started to develop a notion that one of the broadest and longest facts that exist, however, cannot avoid re-examining the entire human field in the light of this general ascetology.
its object, the implicit and explicit practice behaviour of humans, forms the core of all historically manifest varieties of anthropotechnics, and it is questionable whether genetics will ever contribute more than an external modification to this field, which has long been practically constant in its power. If I am arguing for an expansion of the practice zone, I am doing so in the face of the overwhelming evidence that humans, on this side and the other side of work and interaction, and on this side and the other side of the active and observing life, have an effect on themselves, work on themselves, and make examples of themselves. In the following I will demonstrate the autoplastic constitution of the essential human facts. Being human means existing in an operatively curved space in which actions return to affect the actor, works the worker, communications the communicator, thoughts the thinker, and feelings the feeler. All these forms of reaction, I would argue, have an ascetic, that is to say, practicing character, although, as stated above, they largely belong to the undeclared and unnoticed asceticisms, or the occulted training routines. It is only the first expressly practicing humans that the ascetic circle of existence is explicitly rendered visible. It is only with the first expressly practicing humans that the ascetic circle of existence is explicitly rendered visible. They create the self-referential relationships that commit the individual to participating in its own subjectification. They all have authority for us in anthropological questions, whether they are farmers, workers, warriors, writers, yogis, athletes, rhetoricians, circus artists, rhapsodists, scholars, instrumental virtuosos, or models. Height Psychology the doctrine of upward propagation, and the meaning of over. Marriage from an evolutionary perspective. No one who has been willing to follow my deliberations this far should be surprised if I turn once again to Nietzsche, the rediscoverer of the ascetic field in all its breadth and layers, to provide the first keyword for the elaboration of a practice anthropological view of the complex of human facts. In the section On Children and Marriage, from the first part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, 1883, the new prophet tries his hand at life counselling for higher human beings. Quote, I have a question for you alone, my brother. I cast this question like a sounding lead into your soul, that I may know how deep it is. You are young, and wish for a child and marriage. But I ask you now, are you a human being with the right to wish for a child? Are you the victor, the self-compeller, commander of the senses, master of your virtues? Thus I ask you. 
or is it the beast and dire need that speak out of your wish or isolation or discord with yourself i would that your victory and your freedom might yearn for a child living monuments shall you build to your victory and your liberation over and beyond yourself shall you build but first you must be built yourself four square in body and soul not only towards not only onwards shall you propagate yourself but upwards may the garden of marriage help you to do so a higher body shall you create a first movement a self-propelling wheel a creator shall you create marriage thus i call the will of two to create the one that is more than those who created it end quote as always with reading zarathustra one should not be misled by the evangelizing tone these are not neo-religious instructions but rather directions for the neo-ascetic trainer in the present case they refer not to physical exercise of a gymnastic or athletic nature but rather to the sexual diet or more precisely to the inner attitude that should be reached before the natural consequences of human reproductive activity can be affirmed what Nietzsche's prophetic double presents is no less than a critique of the linear sequence of generations thus children who resemble the appearance in the status quo are superfluous or more precisely superfluous replicas of superfluous originals we shall hear more about the reason for their superfluity shortly from the perspective of the new procreation trainer every marriage must be considered a maze alliance brought about simply by natural automatism or the social mechanics for the desire for children because the man as nature presumed to know had thus far been merely a means to a child for the real woman this well-trained female sympathizer and duped fulfiller of feminine wishes must in future be assisted by an advisor who will encourage him to look out for other women ones on an equal footing who do not want to make the husband the maid of a woman but rather form a partnership for the pursuit of nobler aims it should not unsettle us that the primary goal of better marital partnerships is defined a few verses later with the later politically and mass culturally charged term ubermensch walter kaufman the man who introduced zarathustra to an american audience renders it undauntedly as superman it would not be the first word from the dictionary of philosophical art nouveau to regain acceptable meanings after a systemic and sporting translation recall such wilted articles as elan vital fluidum giving giving meaning to the meaningless the creative pause etc which are awakening today to a second third nth life thanks to new company plaques it's not my aim here to examine the relationship between genetics pedagogy dietetics and artistry in nietzsche's call for upward propagation 
I shall content myself with the observation that the biological part in this project can practically be overlooked alongside the three other elements. There is no eugenics in nature. Despite occasional references to breeding, at least no more than is implicit in the recommendation to choose a partner under decent lighting conditions and with one's self-respect intact. Everything else falls under training, discipline, education and self-design. The Ubermensch implies not a biological but an artistic, not to say an acrobatic, program. The only thought-provoking aspect of the marriage recommendations quoted above is the difference between onward and upward propagation. This coincides with a critique of mere repetition. Obviously, it will no longer suffice in future for children, as one says, to return in their children. There may be a right to imperfection, but not to triviality. What does upwards mean for a critique of the vertical? The quoted passage brings into play Nietzsche's specialty. His attentiveness to questions of verticality and human matters of values, rank and achievement to particular effect. It can be taken as the starting point for the general questions of general asceticology. What is the business of the practicing life, and to what end is it pursued? In what sense can we distinguish here between horizontality and verticality? Whether the concern is the ascending line between parents to children in particular, or the gradation between the levels of the practicing life in general. Whence does Nietzsche draw his convictions that the kinetic attribute onward has less value than upward? From what sources does he acquire his knowledge of what above and below mean in such contexts? How can one former life, one mode of being, be located over another in this field anyway? Where do the criteria for judgments of over come from? Are they imminent to circumstances? Or are they introduced from without? Why is continuing horizontally no longer the highest goal for Nietzsche, as it is for the majority of seasoned traditionalists in all times and places? And what motives underlie his conviction that a continuation of the game of replications is only affirmable and non-trivial if it brings about an enhancement? It's clear from these questions that we will not advance any further in these reflections on the nature of practice directions without a critique of the vertical. For the pedagogical, athletic, acrobatic, artistic and Ultimately, any symbolic or culturally mediated interpretation of the words above and over obviously addresses a second spatial meaning, overlying the primary orientations in the physical or geographical space. These two spatial meanings are of the same evolutionary age. Indeed, one cannot rule out the possibility that what we are here terming the second meaning should at least, in development, psychological terms be given priority over the first. 
The reason for this is not an esoteric one. In its relationship with its mother, every infant experiences a pre-symbolic and supraspatial above to which it looks up before it learns to walk. Fathers and grandparents are likewise up there. Long before the child begins to build towers from blocks and place one piece on top of the others as the uppermost. Then it can knock over its edifices and learn that one always remains superior to self-made constructs. It is sufficient to observe how the highest block returns to its original position on the ground following the collapse. This provides an experience of primitive sovereignty whose development continues into the games of critique among adults. Every deconstruction is a game of little towers with the classics. By contrast, the child cannot simply overturn the established polar situation with the parents up there and itself down there. At the experiential level, it remains, barring psychotic deregulations, embedded in a stable vertical tension, possibly until old age, when it has long since physically outgrown its progenitors. The looking up of children to their parents and adults in general, especially to cultural heroes and transmitters of knowledge, gives rise to a psychosemantic system of coordinates with a pronounced vertical dimension. One could almost describe the world of the early psyche as monarchic. In Zarathustra, Nietzsche presupposes the decline of the 4,000-year empire of monarchies as a fact. The psychopolitical situation in which he wants to make himself useful as a procreation advisor is thus informed not only by the statement God is dead, but equally by the assertion the king is dead. While the first claim must be augmented by the supplement God remains dead, this is the novelty in the message of the madman, de Tolomensch, whether one hears it as bad news or welcomes it as a gospel. The second, in keeping with the old ritual law, is followed by the proclamation, long live the king. Nietzsche also yields to this law, but not without raising it to a more abstract level. Though empirical kings have ceased to be impressive and are only above others from the perspective of protocol and the tabloid press, the royal functions as such, understood as a role of attraction to the pure above, over and upwards, remains imaginarily intact in many individuals despite real circumstances and demands a new interpretation the replacement of kings with presidents and celebrities does not provide any solution to the task at hand. It deals with the problem on the surface without even noticing the necessity of redefining the pre of presidency and the pro of prominent. The Time of Artistes Only within the framework of a comprehensive reform in the vertical system, with all its 
psychosemantic and cultural-dynamic aspects can one do justice to Zarathustra's critique of profane reproduction. The death of God was at once that of his vassal, the previous human being, and whoever would declare a successor must acknowledge that man, the conventional representative of the symbolic species governed by notions of God, remains dead. If one wanted to follow the ritual law and proclaim a living king under the new conditions, one would have to find a candidate who was neither king or man in the conventional sense. The only suitable being would be one with special traits that placed it outside the horizon of ordinary human existence. A creature sufficiently inhuman or post-human to meet the requirements of this bizarre line of succession. Going by everything we know about human forms of life in general, and Nietzsche's view of them in particular, only a figure from the pandemonium of the human is suitable for this role. The artiste, or more precisely, the acrobat. The undermining of the human through the radically artificial began long ago with his emergence. Could he be the figure for whom great times are now beginning? We recall Zarathustra's first conquest on his way from the mountains to the cities was a fallen tightrope walker who said that he was never much more than an animal trained with blows and fodder. If one accepts a first pointer from him towards possible meanings of the provocative word, ubermensch, an image forms of a living being that is subjected to constant grooming and physically experiences adaptations to the improbable. Such an ubermensch is closer to animality than the educated bourgeois because of the physical dimension of its art, yet simultaneously closer to an extra-human dimension by virtue of its removal from the everyday sphere through its daily occupational hazards. Someone who balances on the high wire lives from giving the audience a reason to look up. No one would do so without effective attractors. The danger that constantly accompanies the artiste the embodied bravura that saves him at every step, the overcoming of impossibility that enables its conqueror to walk between the precipice on the right and the precipice on the left as the ordinary person walks from their front door to the parlour. Thus the Ubermensch's other qualities are not important. He brings traits that distinguish him from previous humans in the same way the tightrope walker differed from his audience. Thomas Mann, incidentally, in the chapter on the Parisian circus in his Confessions of Felix Krull, had already put a vehement denial of the artist's membership of the ordinary human race in the mouth of his protagonist. One reads that the trapeze artist Andromache, daughter of the air, is neither a woman in the conventional sense of the word, nor even a human being at all. Her true nature is that of a solemn angel of daring. 
Jean Genet voices similar sentiments. Does anyone in his right mind walk on a wire or express himself in verse? It's sheer madness. Man or woman? Unquestionably a monster. Initially, the uber in ubermensch refers only to the altitude at which his rope is fastened above the heads of the spectators. I do not think it is an affront to Nietzsche if we note that beneath the romantic mask of his most oft-cited idea lies initially nothing other than a fantasy of prominence. Insofar as one takes prominence as the category of people worth seeing, worth seeing according to criteria that remain to be discussed. Whether the protruders and outstanders, Latin promenere to protrude and emanere to stand out, walk over tightropes, catwalks or red carpets is merely a technical difference. What matters is the position of the monster, from the Latin monere to warn, in which the skill increased through strict training and its exposition and total visibility are drawn together in a single complex. In this sense, prominence, after artistry and in alliance with it, provides the second impulse for the subversion of the human being through a non-human principle. Ultimately, with his Historoid Ubermensch propaganda, Nietzsche simply ensures the possibility of fastening new ropes overhead that are worth looking up to. The overhear refers to the dimension of looking upwards. The human of the over is the artiste who draws our gaze to wherever he is active. For him, being there means being up there. At this point, one could raise the objection that the artiste Nietzsche was primarily an evolutionist, even a biologist of the worst kind, whose work exemplifies the fatal gesture of his century, the betrayal of the world of the intellect in the name of a naturalism without limits. What else could the desire to translate man back into nature mean? Had Nietzsche not genuinely undergone a dangerous conversion that estranged him from his beginnings? Had he not turned away from Schopenhauer, the last thinker of renunciation, to join the camp of Darwin, the master thinker of affirmation through adaptation? Did he not in fact push the idea of success in life through adaptation further? arriving at an even more dangerous doctrine of success through conquest. With this inversion of the adapting direction entirely following the line of a biologically founded, metabiologically over-elevated concept of power. When Nietzsche, in the prologue to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, quoted above, lets the prophet say to the city dwellers in his first speech that Man is a rope stretched between beast and overman, a rope over an abyss. Are we not hearing, above all else, the voice of the biologist insisting that the last word on the evolution of Homo sapiens has not yet been spoken?
nature acrobatics on Mount Improbable. This objection to the artistic acrobatic understanding of the term Ubermensch does not hold up, because the artistic dimension does not conform to the exhausted separation of nature and culture. Evolutionary biology, for its part, only makes sense if viewed as a doctrine of nature's artistry. With Darwin's optics, nature itself is transformed into a circus in which species work their way upwards to the most incredible performances through a never-ending repetition of the simplest procedures known as variation, selection and heredity. Generally in a co-evolutionary and co-opportunistic manner and in trans-species ensembles. One need only recall the 900 species of figs that exist worldwide. Each one of these has its own exclusive species of fig fly that lives in the fruits and without which none of the fig species could reproduce. Among the artiste-like inventions of culture, Nietzsche mentions those equaling the natural work of art, a woman's breasts, this masterpiece of pre-human evolutionary artistry that is useful and at the same time pleasing. Viewed through the opera glasses of evolutionary theory, the thing we call life is nothing other than a vaudeville with an immeasurable wealth of forms in which every branch of artistry, that is to say, every species, attempts to perform the feat of all feats. Survival. There is no species that has not, like Nietzsche's tightrope walker, made danger its profession in some way. If one hears from natural historians that well over 90% of the countless species that have lived on the earth have died out, for example, 150 of the 9,800 known species of birds in the last few centuries alone, the phrase occupational hazards takes on a non-trivial meaning. From this perspective, biology becomes historical thanatology. If on the other hand one speaks of current life forms, one must, especially as a naturalist, be able to recount their success story and illuminate the principles of their continuation, which means saying how they succeeded in staying on the survivor's side to this day. The star biologist Richard Dawkins took on a project of this kind over a decade ago when he recounted in a popular lecture series at the Royal Institute, broadcast by the BBC under the seemingly child-friendly title Growing Up in the Universe, the history of life and its most imposing success forms. The title of the resulting book, Climbing Mount Improbable, once more demonstrates Dawkins' ability to popularise his field with vivid formulations. In this particular case, he surpassed his own aims. Natural history, described as a climbing tour in the mountains of improbabilities, 
directly becomes a nature artistic affair in which one cannot decide and fortunately does not have to whether the ascent of Mount Improbable is carried out by the different species or the biologist who studies them. The image of climbing this peak of improbability is itself most likely to be inadequate, as the rise of species cannot be understood as the conquest of a pre-existing summit. Rather, its development constitutes the folding out of the mountain to its current altitude. Behind the image of the ascent to the mountain of the improbable lies a deeper figure, namely the emergence of a peak that is raised from the more probable to the more improbable by trivial evolutionary forces. Whether one takes the path to the summit as a climbing or a lifting of the entire rock mass, however, natural history takes on an imminent artiste-like dimension through this observation. Survival is a code word for nature acrobatics. The question of who watches nature perform its feats cannot be answered from a human perspective. The only observer we can point to is the biologist who enters the theatre of evolution with a delay of hundreds of millions of years. In the light of these reflections, it would seem logical to relate the over in survival, überleben, and the over in übermensch to the dimension of growing improbabilities. While dying out would always be the more probable result of a species' attempts to live, and the stagnation of humans in a final form of human existence would certainly be the more probable end to human history, an end that is not espoused without some self-satisfaction by the proponents of a supposed right to imperfection. Survival and overhumanization together embody the tendency towards the rise of the probable to the less probable. A surviving species embodies the current link in a chain of replications that has succeeded in stabilising its improbability. If one assumes that a stabilised improbability immediately becomes a base for further ascents, this provides the basic principles for an understanding of the evolutionary drift towards the summit of Mount Improbable. The biologist's reference to peaks of the improbable thus offers an answer to the question posed above as to the meaning of upwards in Zarathustra's command, not only onwards shall you propagate yourself but upwards, that is plausible in the context of current knowledge. This response assumes that evolution as such always moves upwards in the sense that it establishes a continuum of life from experiments at constantly rising levels of stabilised improbability. That is not a planned progress, of course, yet as a movement towards increasing complexity, it is an unmistakably directed process. The contrast between onwards and upwards disappears of its own accord in the succession of generations because, when viewed diachronically over extended periods, 
all species that seem to embody stable final forms transpire as momentary states within a genetic drift that is unpredictable in its details but points upwards overall. The global drift in the fitness current shows an increase in those species rewarded with survival and it is precisely this tendency that the current runs uphill counterintuitively that Dawkins illustrates with the image of climbing the heights of the improbable. Quote, the evolutionary high ground cannot be approached hastily. Even the most difficult problems can be solved, and even the most precipitous heights can be scaled, if only a slow, gradual, step-by-step -step pathway can be found. End quote. This pathway is sought by the selfish genes which are simultaneously passed onwards and upwards in the constant reality test of species life. Nietzsche's artiste metaphysics can follow on effortlessly from the tenets of Darwinist biology. In terms of their improbability, natural species and cultures, the latter defined as tradition-capable human groups with a high training and skill factor, are phenomena along the same spectrum. In the natural history of artificiality, the nature-culture threshold does not constitute any particularly notable caesura. At most it is a hump in a curve which rises more rapidly from that point on. The only privilege of culture, in relation to nature, is its ability to speed up evolution as a climbing tour on Mount Improbable. In the transition from genetic to symbolic or cultural evolution, the shaping process accelerates to the point at which humans become aware of the appearance of the new in their own lifetime. From that point, humans adopt a stance on their own capacity for innovation, and, until recently, almost always one of rejection. Primary Conservatism and Neophilia During the last 40,000 years of human evolution, the standard reaction to the increased conspicuity of additional improbability was, as far as one can see, an unconditionally defensive one. On their habitual surfaces, all old cultures extending back to their Paleolithic forms are consummatively conservative. They seem infused with a visceral enmity towards innovation, presumably because the task of transferring their conscious content, their symbolic and technical conventions to subsequent generations with consistent intensity, already taxes them to the limit of their capacity. Cultures as such are constant are consistently based on the fundamental contradiction between the acquired neophilic attitude of homo sapiens and the at first inevitably neophobic constitution of their rule apparatuses. Because the reproduction of their ritual and cognitive content is its first and only concern, its path through the ages is massively neoclastic. 
the shattering of the new in general precedes the iconoclasms in particular by many millennia. For every Catiline, every rerum novarum cupidus, there are 10,000 preservers of the old, like Cato. As even the most stable cultures are constantly infiltrated by symbolic and technical innovations, however, whether inventions of their own or infections through contact with the arts of neighbouring cultures, they employ the trick of camouflaging the novelty of what has been newly absorbed, adapting the elements integrated Nolans Volans to the store of their own oldest material, as if they had belonged to their domestic cosmos. Such an integration of the new into the archaic is one of the primary functions of mythical thought, making experienced improbabilities, whether events or innovations, invisible as such, and backdating the invasive, unignorable new to the origin. The preference of metaphysics for the substantial, and its resentment towards the accidental, are unmistakably still offshoots of the mythical thought form. One cannot emphasise enough how significantly the later positivization of the new that began in Europe in the 15th century impacted the mental ecosystems of threshold peoples. It amounts to the revaluation of all values because it turned the oldest civilizatory paradox that neophilic individuals lived in neophobic social structures on its head. Over the centuries, it forced most people into an involuntarily neophobic position from which they were scarcely able to keep up with the ecstasy of innovation in the surrounding civilization. This change breaks with the majesty of the old and transfers the kingly function to those who bring the new. Now, whoever calls out, Long live the king! must be referring to innovators, authors and multipliers of the cultural patrimonium. Only because the modern age opened the era of neolatry was Nietzsche able to risk pushing this trend even further and suggesting radically modified rules of procreation. While procreation had previously always been dictated by the reproducing side, and its criterion for success was the return of the old and the younger, the child was now to take priority, which it achieves when, as Nietzsche unambiguously states, it becomes the one that is more than the two who created it. Those who oppose this are the last humans. Artiste Metaphysics The evolutionary preconditions for this turn can be clearly named, even if the consequences remain unforeseeable. They lie in the neolatric valuations of the European Renaissance, which 
ultimately go back to the reinterpretation of the Christian trinity in favour of the creative spirit and the shifting of the imitatio Christi to the imitatio patris spiritusque. Against this background, Nietzsche did not have to do much more than tear away the husks of convention from the cult of the new, which was already fully developed in this time, and embrace the dogma of innovation without limits. He was one of the first who was able to perceive Mount Improbable emerging from the mist. At the same moment, he realised the relativity of height, for he observed that even high mountain ridges seem flat when one stands and walks on them. Only thus could he arrive at the opinion that the mountain of evolution was not yet high enough. He wanted to place a second mountain on the first, and a third on the second. Accordingly, he wrote, Fewer and fewer climb with me on ever higher mountains. I build a mountain range from ever more sacred mountains. Above every mountain range of results, there is a mountain range of tasks to be unfolded upwards. Only erecting new steep faces can compensate for the flattening out of the mountain resulting from the habit of living on it. One must realise how much Nietzsche is speaking here as an artist. The desire to push improbability further to a mountain range of mountain ranges articulates the highest level to which an artist's confession can advance. Only the artistic will to transform the future into a space of unlimited, art-elevating chances enables us to understand the core of the procreation rule. A creator shall you create, a self-propelling wheel, a first movement. This rule contains no less than Nietzsche's theology after the death of God. There will continue to be a God, and gods, but only humanity imminent ones, and only to the extent that there are creators who follow on from what has been achieved in order to go higher, faster, and further. Such creators never work ex nihilo, of course, contrary to the scholastic misconception. They take up results of earlier work and feed them into the process once again. Creation is a resumption of the first movement. The return into the flame that burns upwards, or the turning of the self-propelling wheel that moves from within itself. This formulation brings into play the better form of scholasticism, where the from within itself constitutes the kinetic dimension of the in itself and the for itself. The creator follows a metaphysical assignment. If life itself is already a vibrating mountain of improbabilities, one can only prove an affirmation by piling the mountain up even higher. That is why Upward procreation is meant to create a creator. By producing 
additional increases of the improbable, one acclaims the dynamic of improbability increase as a whole. Hence the demand for a human being who has overcome their own obstacles in life and is free of resentment towards creativity. Only such a person could, would no longer take themselves, let alone their ancestors, as a yardstick for the becoming of the next generation. Only they could affirm, without neophobic reflexes, the idea that the cultural mountain range of improbability must in future be unfolded to a level higher with each generation. They would not turn their own imperfection into an obligation for their descendants. They would rather die out than return unchanged. They understand and welcome the fact that, according to the law of the normalisation of the improbable, earlier peaks present themselves as mere hills or plains in the perception of later generations. One also finds this law among parasitic, flattened out forms, in the law of increasing jadedness on the art market, for example, or the escalation trends in the hardcore erotic sector. For the creative, a word that died a heat death in less than a century, person, for the creative person, the comparative, in the form Indo-Germanic languages place in their speakers' mouths, is more than simply a grammatical function. The elementary triads, big, bigger, biggest, bonus, malior, optimus, or potens, potentior, potentissimus, give a primitive impression of life's graduated acts of enhancement. One need only undo the theological blockage of the superlative in order to understand that the maxima have always left room for increase, even when they are secured with ne plus ultra fences. It is the very cultural processes of life that presents what was great yesterday as smaller, and passes off the greater of earlier times as normality only a short time later. It transforms the insurmountable difficulties of yesterday into paths on which, soon afterwards, even the untrained will advance with ease. For those who have lost faith in the omnipotence of obstacles, and what was classical ontology, if not a faith in large-scale obstacles. The previous state is the base camp for the next outing, and from that point on, the acrobatic path is the only viable one. Making asceticism natural On closer inspection, what people sought to call Nietzsche's biologism, and biologism, as some diagnosticians of imperialism suppose, is the mystified form of capitalist competition, transpires as a generalised acrobatism, a doctrine of the 
processual incorporation of the nearly impossible. This has less to do with the economy than with an amalgam of artistry, artistdom, training science, dietology and assetology. This combination explains the programmatic statement entrusted to a notebook by the author of the Genealogy of Morals in the autumn of 1887. Quote, I also want to make asceticism natural again, in place of the aim of denial, the aim of strengthening. End quote. The existence of tomorrow's humans is thus to be based entirely on practice and mobility, including a gymnastics of the will and tests of courage for one's own powers. Nature even envisages a training for moral virtues in which one can prove one's strength in being able to keep one's word. For the philosophical acrobat, making asceticism natural involves basing anti-naturalism on nature, which means that the body must always be taken along from the bottoms to the tops of the acrobatic figures. When the artists of the Chinese state circus show in one of their pyramid stunts how five, six or seven artists climb up one another such that the uppermost is standing on the shoulders of the countless others lower down, and then he performs a one-handed handstand while, to top it all, balancing glasses of water on a tray placed on the sole of his left foot, then philosophers too should realise, assuming they go to the circus, what Nietzsche observed with such pathos, that there is no less corporeality involved at the highest point than in the middle or at the bottom. It is also clear how the acrobatic figure provides its own commentary on the topos mind over matter. Artistdom is the somatization of the improbable. Nothing more monstrous than man, existence at high altitude. This viewpoint is not entirely contemporary. It is foreshadowed in older bodies of wisdom literature. In the European context, probably most decisively in the oft-discussed choral song from Antigone by Sophocles, in which man is described as the most wondrous of all things. The most monstrous of the monstrous, des Ungeheuren, as Holderlin rendered it strikingly, but also tendentiously. He is a danger-seeking monster of disturbance that slanders the status quo and leaves nothing as it was. As a seafarer who explores the most perilous zones of the sea, as a desecrator of the holy soil who weakens it with his plough, as a birdcatcher who lays out treacherous nets, as an extravagant big-game hunter in the mountains, as a state-builder and lawmaker, as a doctor who pushes back suffering. In all of these, then, an artiste. 
skillful beyond expectation are the contrivances of his art. At a loss only before the inevitability of death. With such a nature, arrogance is to be expected. The acrobat's pride over the heads of the crowd, and hubris outside of the common rules. Sophocles has a splendid word for this disposition towards immoderation. Apollos. Cityless. Overstepping the polis. Apolitical in the sense of a sacrilegious non-participation in the citizen's religion of golden mediocrity. One cannot help thinking of the Athenian model monster, the overgifted Alcibiades who danced on more than one tightrope. Sophocles here brings up a principle by which the subversion of humanity comes from within humans themselves. It was conventionally termed hubris. This interpretation is short-sighted, not to say bigoted, because it remains compulsively bound to a praise of the middle, even if the meson, as the ancients viewed it, was something quite different from what the word means today. The advantage of this reading, at least, is that it brings up the vertical tension that is inseparable from human existence, even if it is only by defining humans as being endangered by a harmful height. The old European critique of hubris thus represents the basic form of what was known in the 20th century as height psychology. In modernity, admittedly, hubris has changed its approach. It no longer appears as self-elevation, but rather as the presumption of a lowness to which, on closer consideration, no one can lay claim. Max Scheller arrived at the phrase height psychology in the 1920s to express his dissatisfaction with the psychology of the unconscious propagated by Freud, Jung and others and for a time known as depth psychology. In Scheller's view it explained humans one-sidedly downwards, oriented toward the mental mechanism whether drive-theoretically or neuro-theoretically underpinned. He believed that the psychologies of modernity excessively biologized humans, underestimating or entirely neglecting their involvement in a register of meta-biological realities. The sphere of intellectual and spiritual values. The word geist denoting both the spirit and the mind, is taken by Scheller as indicating the partial release of humans from the absolutism of organismic life. What idealistic philosophers once called participation, after all, simply meant an access to higher objects while retaining one's organic shackles. Humans project into this other world the spiritual, or metabiological, some authors call it bionegative, zone of values. By attempting to reach the more than natural by natural means. Under Nietzsche's influence, Scheller had understood that the body must be taken along in the transition to the higher register. 
thus distinguishes him favourably from spiritualists and dualists. He also knew this. The task faced by modern height psychology is the opposite of that dictated to its old European precursors. While the ancients had to bring extravagant back to the maison, the healthy middle, the moderns have to remind their contemporaries of the region of height as such, assuming there are humans of the type who feel most comfortable at the average level and below. Left to their own devices, they chronically excuse themselves downwards and prefer to follow models which prove that downhill paths are more likely to be successful than steep climbs. The modern human being can therefore only be subverted from a height, from the overground. The hidden overground, however, lies, and this is new, more in artistdom than in religion, in that religions, as hinted above, can be co-opted much more easily for artistic purposes, with their branches of asceticism, ritualism, ceremonialism, than vice versa. Artistum is subversion from above. It superverts the existing. The subversive, or rather superversive, principle lies not in the height of haughtiness, the hyper of hybris, or the super of superbia. It is concealed in the acro of acrobatics. The word acrobatics refers to the Greek term for walking on tiptoe, from akros, high, uppermost, and bainine, to go, walk. It names the simplest form of natural anti-naturalness. Before the 19th century, the term was used almost exclusively for tightrope acrobatics, and later expanded to include most other forms of bodily wizardry such as advanced gymnastics and the corresponding circus routines. The athleticisms and extreme sports, on the other hand, for reasons that remain to be established, sought to avoid any association with acrobatics, as obvious as their kinship might seem, to say nothing of their joint campaign to make the mountains of improbability higher. Jacob's Dream, or The Hierarchy. The central document of the subversion, or rather supraversion, of humanity through artistry far predates Sophocles' references to the techno-hubristic constitution of the human sphere. I am referring to the dream vision of Jacob, as recounted in the patriarchal stories in the book of Genesis here in chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. 
I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. The old European tradition does not know any image for the interpretation of human ties to vertical forces that has a comparably powerful effect. Here too we find overhumans, though not of the species coming from humans, but rather those who are created thus by God. The work carried out here by angels is that of acrobats from the start. They climb up and down a ladder. In some translations, a staircase between heaven and earth. This is meant to demonstrate a fact that should be pointed out very plainly. The sphere in which humans lead their lives forms the midpoint between worlds above and below. Every human operation, even the most skilled and meaningful, whether profane or sacred, is overarched by a higher world of transcendental actors whose agents are the angels. Whatever humans are capable of doing can be done better at the overhuman level. Thus, since time immemorial, angels have been making their own contributions to an artistic superversion of the human. There is good reason to claim that the history of old Europe is, in many respects, the history of translations of Jacob's Ladder from the dream sphere into daily culture. It constitutes the shared history of hierarchy and acrobatics, insofar as one transfers the initial acrobinian, the walking high up on tiptoe, onto walking and standing on the steps of a ladder between the earth and the highest, and onto the many ranks of nobility between the king and the people. Incidentally, ladder acrobatics in the circus constitutes a transitional form to aerial acrobatics. As with angels, whom one imagines not only as rung climbers, but also as a flying company. It makes good sense, therefore, when Jacob builds the first house of God, Bethel, in the very place where the angel's ladder touched the earth. For the first brick, he takes the stone that he used as a pillow on the critical night. When an old nomadic people territorializes itself, the best place to do so is one from which the root continues vertically. Where there was dream hierarchy, there shall be real hierarchy. Just as the angels stand above one another in ten ranks, from the worshipping seraphim to the executive angels of the basic courier service, the members of the actually existing church should be should also stand above one another, according to Pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite. Areopagite? And likewise, the functionaries of actual administrations and the all too actual corporations of bureaucrats. Whether the old European nine-level secondary school, gymnasium, also contains a distant projection of the Neoplatonic Christian choir level is an open question. What Jacob, the patriarch of the hierarchy thinkers, dreams up is an artistic pyramid of subtle bodies. Unlike in the circus, its sights result not in storms of applause as soon as it persists for a minute, it is meant to last for millennia, at least that is how Pseudo-Dionysius translated the latter vision into his system. 
that the Areopagite thus simultaneously created a symbol of the acrobatization of both heavenly and ecclesiastical hierarchies, however, can only be noted from the current pole of history. Once the dissolution of traditional hierarchical systems provokes a new reflection on the reasons, modes of operation, and metamorphoses of verticality. It testifies to the power of the latter tradition that even Nietzsche was still under its influence when he lets Zarathustra say to his friend that he wants to show him all the stairways to the Ubermensch. What is notable here is the paradoxical construction whereby the stairway is to continue existing, even if there is no longer anything above it to lean against. The old world's most powerful symbol of verticality mysteriously survives the atheistic crisis. It continues to indicate a tension coming from the heights, even though it is no longer consolidated by any transcendental opposing camp. The problematic motif of the transcendence device that cannot be fastened at, a, at the opposite pole also returns in Zarathustra's declaration that man is a rope stretched between beast and ubermensch. Whether ladder or rope, one can no longer tell with this imagery where the upward tension is supposed to come from. This difficulty remains irresolvable at the level of traditional imaginations. Indeed, it would have ruined the entire structure had Nietzsche not long since adapted implicitly to the completely different kind of evolutionary enhancement of improbability. With its help, the transformation of angels into artistes succeeds almost unnoticed. In the same way the former served as God's messengers, the latter act as messengers of art. They convey the good and alarming news that people are piling up ranges of ever higher and more sacred mountains. Overwords Finally, it should be noted that Nietzsche, though the most radical analyst of the newly broached problematics of verticality, was not alone in his time. One could say that the most contemporary thinkers in the 19th and 20th centuries were those who added at least one term to added at least one term to modernity's vocabulary of verticality marx speaks of superstructure and overproduction his brother-in-law lafargue of overconsumption darwin of survival Nietzsche of the Ubermensch, Freud of the Superego, Adler of Overcompensation, and Aurobindo of the Supermind and the Supramental. We owe the word overkill to an astute nuclear strategist, hypotonia to an obscure doctor, overpopulation to an obscure demographer supermarket to an obscure wholesaler and superstar to an obscure journalist. One must go as far back as the 5th century to find an analogous wave of new verticality words. 
They were introduced almost exclusively by the master thinker of hierarchism, the aforementioned Pseudo-Dionysius, who stirred up the vocabulary of Christian Platonic theologians for the next thousand years with his numerous neologisms using the prefix hyper. If there is a word missing from the dictionary of the 20th century, even though the matter itself was ubiquitous, it is the word ubermurder, supermurderer. It would apply to the group of dictators who capitalised on the vertically blind and anti-hierarchical affects of mass culture to make great politics, usually under socialist pretenses. As far as Nietzsche's ominous ubermensch is concerned, I cannot refrain from making my reflections on this concept with an ironic note. One thing is clear. In the dating of the era of the ubermensch, its inventor fell prey to the greatest of all possible optical illusions, which is astounding, for nothing seems more obvious than the fact that the age of the ubermensch lies not in the future, but in the past. It is identical to the epoch in which humans sought to elevate themselves above their physical and mental status by the most extreme methods for the sake of a transcendent cause. Christianity undeniably has a share of the copyright on the word ubermensch, incurring royalties even when it is used for anti-Christian purposes. No slave revolt in morality. Christian athletism. I part ways most importantly with Nietzsche in his interpretation of the difference between master morality, herrenmoral, and slave morality, sklavenmoral. I can see that I am unsure whether a major event such as the slave revolt in morality, invoked so forcefully by Nietzsche, ever occurred. I tend more towards the view that this supposed revaluation of all values, this most far-reaching distortion of all that was naturally right in the history of the spirit, was a fiction in which the author elevated a number of very significant and correct observations to an untenable construct. His motive lies in the fact that Nietzsche, though not intending to found his own religion, did intend to defound traditional Christianity with holy fury. It is precisely the ascetological perspective reopened by Nietzsche that highlights the continuity and the transition from heathen antiquity to the Christian world, especially in the era in the area most relevant here, the transference of athletic and philosophical asceticism to the monastic and ecclesiastical modus vivendi. Had this not been the case, the early monks of Egypt and Syria would not, citing Pauline Im images of the Apostles Agon, have called themselves the Athletes of Christ. And were monastic asceticism not an internalization of the regimen of physical warriors, as well as an adoption of philosophical doctrines of the art of living from a Christian perspective. Monastic culture, especially in its 
West Roman and Northwest European manifestations could not possibly have led to the unfolding of powers on all cultural fronts. Charitable, architectural, administrative, economic, intellectual and missionary powers that took place between the 5th and 18th centuries. What actually happened then was a displacement of athletism from the arenas to the monasteries, or more generally speaking, a transference of proficiency from declining antiquity to the burgeoning Middle Ages. To mention only the periods, and not name each of the older new carriers of competence, the aritological collectives of that time and later times. Hugo Ball put his finger on the essence of these shifts when he emphasised in his book Byzantinicius Christentum, 1923, that the intellectual heroism of the monks constituted a superior counter-project to the nature heroism of warriors. It is obvious that this great transfer led to distortions under the influence of Ressentiment, but even as tendentious a statement as Matthew 19.30, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, which Nietzsche mercilessly exposed, could also be read from the perspective of the great shift of Arete. It could be saying that the hierarchy resulting from the conditions of power and ownership should not remain the only permissible view, in fact, not even the central one, of intellectual rankings. Aristocracy or meritocracy. I repeat, a slave revolt of morality did not, in my view, take place at any time in the old Europe. In reality, a revaluation of values occurred in the separation of power and virtue, arete, virtue, that would have been inconceivable for the ancient Greeks, a separation whose effects continued into the woolly endgames of European aristocracy in the 19th century. The old European social order committed its true sin against the spirit of positive asceticism, not through its Christianization, but rather through the Faustian pact with a class system that saw a nobility without virtue reaching the top in many places. This enabled the consolidation of a non-meritocratic exploitative aristocracy whose only achievement lay in the identical transference of its inflated self-image to equally useless descendants, often over several centuries. One gains a clearer picture of this chronic European disgrace, the hereditary nobility, by comparing conditions in the ancient scholarly culture of China, which pushed back the hereditary nobility with an educated nobility for over 2,000 years. The indicated revaluation of values did not bring to power the resentments of sick little people, as Nietzsche suggests, rather the mixture of laziness, ignorance and cruelty among the heirs to local power was expanded into a psychopolitical factor of the highest order. 
the court of Versailles was only the peak of an archipelago of noble inutility that spread over Europe. It was only the neo-meritocratic renaissance between the 15th and 19th centuries, born by the middle class and the virtuosos, that gradually put an end to the grotesque of hereditary aristocracy in Europe, leaving aside the still virulent phantoms in the yellow press. Only since then have we been able to say once more that politics as a European form of life means the struggle and the concern for the framework of institutions in which the most important of all emancipations can take place. The emancipation of the differences that arise from achievements and are controlled from the differences created and passed on through subjugation, power and privilege. Needless to say, the aforementioned group of Übermüder were not politicians, but rather exponents of an oriental power concept that does not acknowledge any discipline except the art of domination. They had no interest in the European definition of the political, for all they got to see of the range of differences was the portion that could be explained by theories of class and race. Such theories have always been blind as soon as the birth of difference from levels of proficiency came into focus. <laughs>